I'm Salwa Khan. On Mothering Earth Today, our focus is on an issue that affects us all, which is what each of us can do to help prevent the destructive effects of flooding. Of course, riparian zones are critical. Those are areas that are right along the riverbanks. But what we call uplands, which are areas away from waterways, make up most of the land, and that's where most people live. The good thing is that there are best practices you can follow to help slow the movement of water and thus help alleviate the severe effects of flooding no matter where you live. My guest today is Jamie Kinsherf, a land management consultant and master naturalist. Jamie, you've seen a lot of floods and periods of drought and have studied the land. Let's start by talking about areas of land which are away from rivers and streams and what people can do in those areas. Most of the land, at least in Texas, is going to be what we call rangeland. And there's different types of rangeland. Part of the way that we determine best practices is to determine what kind of rangeland that we're talking about. That would include the um, vegetation types, the soil types, the topography, and also uh, things like climate. Um, How much does it rain there each year? As far as the uplands contribution to flood events and um, runoff and stuff like that, it's it's all one big system. Um, the uh, riparian zones are, of course, the place where water will flow most of the year. That's the name, riparian zone. But the uplands are the place where most of the rain actually falls. And a certain amount of it will actually percolate down into the soils and um, eventually down into the aquifer. But as we all know, there's only so much carrying capacity that any given soil type has, and then the water has to go someplace. Especially in the huge flood events that we have, most of the rains that we have around here, believe it or not, seem to be less than a quarter or a half an inch. But every so often we have those frog chokers that are the 13-inch or 17-inch rains, and of course that water needs to go someplace. The uplands um, would basically be the contributing zone. They would also be the defining area where uh, the watersheds are defined. For example, we live here right on York Creek, and depending on where the water falls, it will either flow into York Creek or Onion Creek, or actually York Creek is a contributing, um, is a a tributary of Onion Creek. And so as far as land management on the, on the upland zones, it's really critical for landowners to be really aware of mainly of bare ground. Uh, in order to be really good stewards of our property, we need to understand the role that grasses, um, forbs, and trees play in holding the soils in place and therefore letting that water percolate down into our uh, aquifers For many of us around here especially, water in the ground is akin to money in the bank. And it's it's a long-term savings account so that when it doesn't rain, we still have water available to us. Here in this area, we're part of the 355-square-mile Blanco River Basin. Some people call it a watershed, but would it be better to call it a water catchment basin? We are starting to change that terminology because when we call places watersheds that implies that we want that water to go away Um, and when we talk about water catchment areas we talk about it 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 more implicitly describes 
what's happening in the ecosystem. The water has to go someplace, and we and and indeed we are quote unquote catching it in the um, in in the rivers and the streams. But eventually, those rivers and streams have to go someplace, and at least here in Texas, many of those rivers um, flow into or through reservoirs that we've created um, for drinking water, for flood control, and and that kind of thing. Um, so yes, I would, yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that terminology change. The water in our uh, streams and rivers seems to, well, most often starts out with rain in the uplands. What kinds of things can uh, homeowners or landowners do to make best use of that water? We're learning a whole lot of things these days. Of course, rainwater collection or rainwater harvesting is becoming quite popular for people here in central Texas. It's, it's, it's not the cheapest thing to do if you're going to actually use it for drinking water, but our legislature um, is coming on board, and hopefully soon there might be some tax credits for people that, that make that kind of investment. Other things that people can do is they can re- create what we call uh, rain gardens. It's essentially a, a new term for a place where we catch rain. Back in the 1940s, uh, many of the ranchers um, dug uh, ponds or um, large uh, um, tanks. And the idea was is to simply have a place where the water flows. And if you go onto some of the properties that have been um, in the same hands for several generations, many of those tanks um, still exist. But of course, as um, cities expand and take over those properties, the tanks are not very useful for building houses on. So they usually fill them in and, and then we don't know that they've even been there. So rainwater catchment, um, creating rain gardens, um, and that's simply a place where it could be a place outside your house where you're, if you don't have rainwater catchment, maybe it's a place where you can direct your gutter or the catchment from your house to go, and it would be a depression that you've created that could be filled with plants that really like a wet footprint. Um, they could be um, plants that are emergent plants that start out and like to live under the water but grow out of the water. Um, and then surrounding that, you can certainly put a number of plants that, that love a wet footprint that would be the same kinds of plants that you would find around the Texas rivers and streams. The other thing that we can do as land managers is be really careful about using large equipment on properties Anytime you create a scar in the land, especially if you take away root structures, then especially when we get one of these big uh, uh, heavy rains, the next thing you know is you'll look out at that landscape and a good bit of your topsoil will have been taken away by the erosion. One thing to consider around here is uh, most of us live on top of limestone and on a limestone substrate, it takes about 500 years to form one inch of topsoil. And so once it goes downstream, you probably won't even get a thank you note from your neighbor um, and your children won't have it back. I'm here with Jamie Kinscherf, who's a land management consultant and master naturalist. And uh, we're talking about different ways of managing land and rain and water, basically. Um, we, we were just talking about rain gardens. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing I've been curious about is what you know, when we talk about creating a depression in the ground and putting plants in, are there any guidelines in terms of the size of that area? Are, are there are sizes that are, you know, the best in terms of how much water you collect? How much? 
Well, I guess part of it depends on the percentage of property you have and how much you want to devote to that particular practice. Um, I've seen, um, for example, outside of our county extension office, they put a a rain garden that's probably 20 feet long and 15 feet wide. Um, And I guess one of the things that you want to make sure of is that the drainage that's going to that rain garden um, doesn't essentially every single time it rains overflow and then go into a place that perhaps you, you didn't want. So, um, there's, you know, you could do some simple math. You could determine, um, the volume that your rain garden can hold. And you could also determine, um, how much water is going to come off your roof on an average rainfall. And of course we can never play um, plan for the biblical flood events that are going to change everybody, but you can certainly plan for what we would call a normal rainfall. Um, the fun fact about rainfall off of a roof is if you have a thousand square foot roof and you have a one inch rainfall, you'll get 650 gallons of water. And so you can figure out pretty much how much water might be going into that rain garden, you know, off of that particular roof. What kind of advice can you give to homeowners, landowners, maybe on small, you know, just a house and some land around it. You know, the very first thing that I would tell people to do is find out what you own. Um, How would you do that? One of the things that you could do is you could hire a a professional um, that could come walk your property and essentially do a, a species survey. For people that have a little more time, you could take the Texas Master Naturalist course, which is a 40 hour course, um, speaking specifically to this local ecosystem, starting with the soils and the rocks and, and working our way up. And, you know, it is a time commitment. It is a volunteer effort. But the other thing um, that I have done and, and many other naturalists have done is spend a god-awful amount of time out in the field with your field guide sitting in front of this plant trying to figure out what in the world it is. And then, of course, the hallelujah moment when you key it out and figure out what it is But you know what, for most of us, the best thing to do is to find a friend who knows a little bit more than you and go take a walk. Because there are many people that love to share their knowledge and do it with grace, and they actually know what they're talking about. And once you know what you have on your property, you can determine which of those plants are going to be beneficial to your own personal goals. And then at that point, you can either start planting stuff or start taking stuff out. But yeah, learn learn what you have. And something else that we, we did talk about earlier is the rain gardens. Oh, right. But uh, also, I understand in other strategies using berms. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, one of the ways that we can um, slow the water down um, really effectively is to create berms or some people call them grobbins. Um, many times um, on roadways you see rocks that are essentially rolled up into what looks like a hot dog and covered with um, uh, with some sort of netting or some sort of wire. Yeah, it looks like fence material. Um, and basically what you can do, especially if you live on a hillside where erosion is, is an issue, which for many of us it is, um, is you can create um, a chevron shape um, with those berms going down the hill. And what it does, it will slow the water down, um, which will obviously reduce the velocity when it finally you know, levels out. Um, it will reduce the impact of the erosion. And also it will give it more of a chance, as it slows down, it gives it more of a chance to actually um, uh, infiltrate down into the soils. Um, and so, yeah, that's actually a really, really good idea. Um, one of the things you 
need to do is just be really aware of your topography. And also, before you make any decisions about using, um, I think I may have mentioned this before, but um, you know, before you uh, decide that it's in your best interest to use bulldozers or land movers to create berms, get the advice of an expert because um, we have all seen people do generations worth of damage in a weekend by renting a bobcat and making some really bad choices. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm talking with Jamie Kinscherf about best practices to manage land. Right now, it's time for a break. just joining us, you're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan, and I'm here with Jamie Kinscherf, land management consultant and master naturalist. We were talking about what each of us may be able to do to prevent some of the more damaging effects of flooding. Jamie, one thing I'm curious about is whether the landscape of the Texas Hill Country was always pretty much what we see now namely limestone and a fair number of live oaks and what we call cedar trees. If you talk to some of the experts uh, from Texas A&M and other experts in in land management um, about the Hill Country, especially the history of it, if you could go back in a time machine, say 200 or 250 years, of course we wouldn't have nearly as many people here, but we've historical records show that wildfires or range fires would come through this part of the hill country about every seven years. And those of us who have put uh, ash junipers or cedars onto a fire or seen them um, catch fire know that they basically explode in flames. And so as a result, this part of the world was mainly a, an oak savanna. It was mainly tall prairie grasses with oak mots every now and again. And of course, you know, the usual suspects of other deciduous trees. But most of the ash junipers were contained down in the canyon lands. Once, we, once our population started growing and we decided that we, you know, range fires or, or wildfires are um, bad for our property, bad for our livestock, then we started putting them out. And as a result, the ash junipers have now become an invasive species. They, um, the reason that, that people hate them, which they seem to be the species that most people love to hate around here, is because they, quote-unquote, suck up a whole bunch of water out of the aquifer. Um, many times I've heard the quote, an average cedar tree sucks 35 gallons of water a day out of the aquifer. Turns out that that's not really true. There's a really um, smart guy named Ben Schwartz at um, the Meadows Center at Texas State University, and Ben has been doing studies on how much water gets pulled out of the aquifer by different species of trees. Um, One of the methods he's used is by putting um, electric probes in trees. Most people know that water is very conductive of electricity, and so the more conductivity in, in that reading, then of course the more water that's flowing through the tree. Um, it turns out that the ash junipers are mainly guilty of not letting water infiltrate into the ground. Um, when you look at their structure, most of the branches are pointed up and they have needles, and 
you know, in, a, in an average rain event, that first third of an inch would probably be contained in those needles and never hit the ground. The other thing is, is if you look underneath the ash junipers, because of the years and years that they may have been there, there's not soil underneath there. There's basically all of the piled up needles, that fluffy stuff. And when the rain that comes down actually hits that stuff, it's still not hitting soil and it has a chance to, to evaporate off again. One of the reasons they are very successful in this hard scrabble ecosystem is they don't have a taproot. And it turns out that for many ash junipers, their root structure can be three times the diameter of the crown. And as a result, what ends up happening is if you get 30 or 40 percent uh, coverage on your property of, of ash junipers, you really start affecting the infiltration of water into the ground. It's not that they're sucking water out of the ground. Another thing that people have done, uh, aside from fencing, is to bring in plants that are not native to the area. What effect does that have when you have a lot of exotic plants? We have invasive species that are native, um, and we also have invasive species that are non-native. There are certain plants that are brought in from other places that don't have a tendency to spread like wildfire and cause a whole bunch of problems, and those would be adaptive plants or and usually some sort of um, uh, decorative plant for a garden or something like that. Um, one of the things that we've done, especially through the landscape and, and nursery business, is um, essentially... Uh, provide products to homeowners that don't know anything about plants that they're buying, and it's not their fault. Um, for example, the Chinese tallow tree was brought in by a big um, giant uh, landscape company in Houston because it grows really fast, it looks really, really beautiful in the fall, and you know who doesn't want a shade tree really quick that looks beautiful in the fall? Well, we didn't realize that once we brought them in, um, first of all, they have a, 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 an amazing amount of um, seeds that, that drop to the ground. Um, and when the leaves fall to the ground, they actually exude um, uh, a chemical that um, will permeate into the soils and not allow any other plant but a tallow tree oh, to grow sure. up. Um, and it's a so, very clever strategy. Oh, it, yeah, it's chemical <laughs> warfare by, you yeah. know, trees. Um, yeah. And... Um, and so what ends up happening, well, let me back up a little bit. I really like Texas to look like Texas. I really like the Northeast to look like the Northeast. I like Thailand to look like Thailand. And, um, you know, especially once Columbus um, came over, all of a sudden, all bets were off. As, um, the plant community changed um, considerably. In fact, people in their own mind can picture the famous painting of Thanksgiving with the pilgrims and the Native Americans. Every single plant in that painting is a non-Native plant that was brought in because the British wanted to make New England. They wanted, you know, the northeastern part of America to look like England because they were used to it and they were used to those plants. Um, so one thing that a land manager has to do is decide... Um, you know, first of all, um, their goals 
and what plants will benefit their goals. Um, one of the things that's really important to do is do a species survey. And one of the first things that I would do is look for the invasive species and then come up with an action plan because those are the ones that are probably going to undermine your plan to do anything else. Um, many of what we call invasive species have a tendency to grow really rapidly. And as a result, they shade out other plants um, from, from growing up that could have grown in that same place. Um, and, you know, even though I think that the, um, history of the tallow tree is, I mean, it's a very useful tree. They, you know, use the, um, seed pods to make, um, tallow, you know, for candles and for soap making, but I'm really glad they do it in China. Um, I don't want them to necessarily do it here in Texas. Um, and I think that, that it's all over the world. I often wonder, um, you know, is is someone in China um, looking right. at some species of plant going, yeah. man, that came from the, like kudzu, have, you know, um, have, you know um, and, and so, I mean, part yeah. of it is an aesthetic thing where I want the world to continue to look different in different places, but also... Um, uh, we, you know, here in central Texas, one of the plants that many of us battle is the ever hated Malta star thistle. And it's this plant that grows up really, really fast and it grows in huge giant bunches. It grows so fast that it shades out grasses and there's nothing good about it. Nothing wants to eat it. Right. And pulling it is really hard because it has all these hard stickers yeah. on it. So, yeah. um, where did that come from? Um, that came from Malta. I mean, it's called, you know, it's called Malta star, star really? thistle. Yeah. And so, so somebody purposely brought that? No. You know what um, ends up happening is um, that will probably come in in um, a, a load of grain mm -hmm. or um, even on someone's shoes. Um, often scientists do things. They bring in species that later on become invasive. And we didn't, we thought it was going to do good things. Mm -hmm. There's a, um, a grass here in Texas called King Ranch Bluestem. And it was brought in, um, some say in the 1940s, by TxDOT because it grows really fast. As we were building a whole bunch of roads, um, they wanted to stop the erosion on the roadside so they would spread mm. seed from this grass. But it has very, very little protein value for grazers, um, and it has a tendency to grow so fast that it will shade out anything else. And now, of course, since we've learned about it, they don't have it in the mix anymore. But as a result, um, anytime there would be bare ground, it would have a tendency to take over right. sooner than, you know, a climax grass um, or a, a grass that would be beneficial. I'm here with Jamie Kinscherf, who's a land management consultant and master naturalist. And we were just talking about invasive species of plants. Um, and I wanted to go back to that a little more just to understand or for, for our listeners to understand what is, can we define what is an invasive? Yes, an invasive species would be a species that, whose um, community has become a high percentage of the overall community on your property. Um, for example... So it's taking over. Yeah, it's basically taking over. And, um, you know, and, and we do have native species. We have um, prickly pear um, that can become incredibly invasive. Um, another one would be... Um, uh, mesquite trees, um, they have a tendency to become really invasive. Uh, of course, we've already talked about ash juniper. Um, but um, one of the ways that we know something could be native is we have to agree on that term. Most botanists will agree, at least in the Americas, that anything that was here prior to Columbus you know, could be considered a native species. Um, we only have written records after that. Um, 
And one of the things that we do, for example, ash juniper or cedars are a native species, although many of people don't want to believe that. But one of the things that scientists do is they do core samples in places where the soil has been undisturbed for a very long time. I know myself and my lovely wife, Martha, both um, get affected by what people call cedar fever. And we walk out the door and our car is covered with this green stuff. Our lawn furniture is covered with this green stuff. Our hair gets covered with this green stuff. And of course, that becomes part of the soil record over time. It turns out... That's the pollen. uh, The pollen does. Yeah, the pollen becomes um, part of the soil record. And as a result... um, People who are doing these uh, core samples have actually found uh, cedar pollen as far back as just after the last ice age. So, you know, 12, 14,000 years ago. So although many people hate it, um, and, and, you know, as long as it doesn't start taking over the world, it actually has great wildlife value. Um, for example, golden cheek warblers um, use it exclusively. They will peel the bark off and make their nests out of it. Um, there are mammals and birds that, that, that will use their, um, their berries um, as, you know, sources of, of foods. Um, and especially for property owners who have small acreage properties, don't go clear all your ash junipers off of your fence lines or off of your property lines because that's a really great sight and sound barrier, you know, for your next door neighbors. Um, but, you know, most of us need to learn how to work at the pace of nature as opposed to the pace of man. And when we go to start modifying our land, we need to understand um, the two-year effect, the five-year effect, the 10-year effect, and, um, and try and make decisions so that, you know, it's actually beneficial to our property. That's a lot to think about and to do. Maybe it's time to get that rain garden going. You know, I'd love to hear from you, so please send any comments or suggestions for future shows to me at gardentoad at vcs.com. That's gardentoad, one word, at v-c-y-e-s dot com. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth. Mm